Last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 4. And in that passage of scripture you're going to find that all the children of Israel throughout Judea and Jerusalem and round about assembled together. And the Bible says when they assembled together they spent one-fourth of the day reading, listening to the reading of the Word of God, and then they spent one-fourth part of the day confessing their sins before God. And then they started worshiping the Lord. Now today we're looking at at verse 5 through the end of the chapter, verse 38. We're not going to read every verse in here, but I'm going to go through that passage of Scripture and point out several different things. Because starting in verse 6, it is a prayer. And they are praying together. And the Bible says they're standing during all of this time. Now you think about that one-fourth part of the day. Uh, the day in Israel would be from 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening. And that's their 12-hour day. And so you can imagine out of the 12 hours, that's... Uh, you know, having uh, three hours and then three hours and then three and three. And so you're talking about reading the Word of God, listening to it for three solid hours. Now, a lot of us would have problems sitting in our easy chair reading for three hours. You might fall asleep, uh, but you're reading the Word of God for three hours. But then standing and confessing your sins for three and a half hours now, I'm sure some of you would say, well, Pastor, it'd only take me five minutes. And, and you're the one who needs three hours. You just don't know it. And uh, so here they are uh, reading the Word of God and confessing their sins. And then they're spending time praising the Lord. And they stand up as a congregation and the Levites and the priests are leading them. And they start praying to the Lord. And so what we're looking at tonight, starting verse 6 on, is the prayer that they prayed as a congregation to the Lord. And as they prayed, they were worshiping God and they were picking out different characteristics of God, the compassion of God, how God watched over them. And so they're rehearsing to the children of Israel how mighty a God they serve. So they're not just talking about what has happened in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're talking about what God has done in history, starting from creation and going through his leading the children of Israel out of bondage, taking them through the wilderness, setting them up in a land and providing for them every step of the way and even correcting them and forgiving them. And so what they're doing is reminding the people what a wonderful God they serve. And I don't know about you, but I know we serve a wonderful God, but I always enjoy being reminded about what a wonderful God we serve. I love to hear people sing his praises and and share what God has done in their life and how God worked in their life. Uh, This afternoon we had three couples over from church and it's always interesting. I always want to know how did you meet, you know, how did God bring this all together? And and I think how wonderful it's going to be in heaven when we get and we just get a chat. And we get to share our lives and how God intervened in our lives and how God put the pieces of the puzzle together for us and to give us the joyous, blessed life that we experience right now. How did God do that? Well, it wasn't because we were the best Christians on the face of the earth or we were the best people, but it's because God had such love and compassion for each and every one of us that he favored us with watching over our life every step of the way, and sometimes we weren't even aware of it. 
And so this is the reminder for the children of of God. So we're not going to read it all. I just thought I'd have you stand while I preach the whole sermon. Instead of read all the verses, well, well, maybe we'll just alter that a little bit and just let you stay seated, okay? Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. And we're going to be looking at the subject, why we should praise God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and all you do. And Heavenly Father, I pray that tonight's service will remind us just as you have been a great God to the children of Israel, Lord, you've been a great God to us. You have helped us so much in our lives. Lord, every one of us could think of times you've provided for us supernaturally when we desperately needed it. We could thank you for the time you gave forgiveness and salvation. We could thank you for the times you brought in correction in our lives. And Lord, we certainly have needed that from time to time. And Lord, we couldn't number the times your forgiveness has been felt. Your grace was given when your judgment was deserved. Lord, you've been so kind to us. And just as you were to the children of Israel, I pray that you would let every one of us see how your hand has been very evident in our lives. And I thank you for this, Lord, and I pray that you'll use this sermon for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why we should praise God. So the first thing they mention is God is our creator. Notice what verse 6 says. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heavens of he- the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. So right off they mention, Lord, first of all, you're our creator. Now, I guess we forget that. It's been a little, a few years between creation and now, and sometimes we forget to praise God for the fact that everything that is, he created. Everything's come from his hand. Now, I do think we're blessed to be in the Northwest and be able to look at the beautiful mountains, and every once in a while we have a clear sky, not today for long, but every once in a while. And we just praise God for the beauty he's given us here. He's the creator. I read an illustration by the French mathematician, uh, Le Comte de Levay, and he examined the laws of probability for a single molecule of high dissymmetry to be formed by the actions of chance. Now, Let me just say, you've got to have a lot of time on your hand to figure out that probability. Because this, he was doing this before you had hand computers, before you had laptops, before you had calculators. And he figured in order to have one molecule, all the parts and particulates of one molecule to come together, he said it would be 10 to the 200 and 53rd power. Now, interesting enough, that is very similar to the exact number of what scientists say are the amount of atoms in the known universe. That gives you an idea of how big a number we are talking about. Not just billions, (laughs) trillions, and then all the other terms that are much higher than that that we don't use very often. But he continued ironically, let us admit perhaps that even though the probability is so high that one molecule is formed, he goes on to say it would do you no good for you need millions of molecules to make a small portion of matter. And he said, uh, So either you have to realize what a great miracle creation was, or you have to not believe in science at all. 
because the probability is so large. He said the fact that one molecule, okay, maybe even though it seems impossible, but it wouldn't help you. To see what God has created is just an amazing, amazing thing. This, this week I was reading about the human eye and how that it can sense something. If uh, your brain tells your eye, if it sees anything coming towards you, it can shut your eyelid in one one hundredth of a second. Well, the Bible says he'll come in the twinkling of an eye, one one hundredth of a second. And it's amazing. You see anything coming, the first thing is you, you just close because you want to protect your eye. Your eye is such an amazing thing. You can pick out 10,000 different colors. And I didn't even know there were that many. 10,000 different shades of color and distinguish one from the other. It can not only see far, it can see close. It can in every second see and focus on 80 different things per second all around us. It is such an amazing thing. In fact, people, uh, Christian scientists, of course, who firmly believe in creation say that the eye, the human eye is one of the most marvelous of all God's creation. It weighs just a portion of an ounce. And yet it has such a high function and the ability is just amazing that God gave us. Now imagine something like that involving. <laughs> uh, there's just no way. And so they praise God as the creator, and it's such an amazing thing. We see that not only is God our creator, but God also makes our sovereign choices, sovereign choices. God made the choices concerning Israel. He says in verse 7 of this chapter, Thou art the Lord the God who didst choose Abraham, or Abram, and brought Broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gavest him the name of Abraham. And of course, Abraham is the covenant name that God gave to Abram when he chose him to be the founder of the race of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. And so they show that God is sovereign. He chose them. Now we find in scripture, God says, I chose you not because you were the most, not because you were the biggest, not because you were the brightest, not because you were the strongest. He says, but I had compassion on you. Aren't you glad we got saved because God had compassion on us? Aren't you glad you don't have to live up to a certain standard or you miss salvation? Imagine standing before God and find out that you, you, missed, you missed like that much from getting into heaven. Son, you gave it a good try, but, but you fell short by that much. I'm so glad the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Yesterday, we had a great day of outreach. I, I went with... Uh, uh, Justin, uh, one of our Korean students, a fine young man, and uh, we went out and I got to pray with five different individuals. And what a, what a joy it was to be able to explain salvation and how Christ put on himself all of our sins. And if we're willing to trust him as our personal Savior, we will stand before God just as though we'd never sinned. All of it gone. Well, some of those were children, and they even understood the concept of sin and the need for salvation. I certainly did at nine years of age. I knew I desperately needed a Savior, but I never understood it clearly until one night on a Wednesday night, a teacher who happened to be my own father, teaching junior age boys and girls, shared the plan of salvation so crystal clear that even as a child, I understood it clearly and knew I needed Jesus. And I always tell people, you know, when you prayed that prayer, it's like you opened up your heart and you let Jesus come in. 
You see, we don't get saved because we're good. We are saved because Jesus is good and he lives in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Bible says. So when we invite Jesus Christ into our life and we trust him as our personal savior, he becomes ours. And then I have the joy of telling them when Jesus Christ came in your life, he didn't come to check you out or he would check out. How many would say that's true of you too? If he came to check you out, he'd say, oh, I'm out of here. I picked the wrong one. No, he didn't come to check you out. He came to stay forever and ever and ever. And then I always tell him, now listen, I want, to, I want you to know that as long as you're in this flesh, you're going to mess up. But the good news is that Christ died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Praise God for that. Amen. That's good news. So he is a God who loves us. He is a God who makes the sovereign choices in our life. Uh, you uh, single young men and young ladies, as you think about who, who does God have for me, you know, you don't have to worry. God has already figured that out, and he is looking to direct things in your life, and uh, it's just an amazing thing. You can trust him. And then we see that God is our sympathizer. In chapter 9, verse 9, they go on in their prayer and they say, And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heardest their cry by the Red Sea? God heard them in their time of need. You ever have a time of need like that? You ever have a time in life where your back is up against the wall, as, as they used to say? And when I was a kid, I'd hear preachers say, sometimes your back gets up against the wall. And uh, I, I honestly, I didn't know much of what they were saying. But as you get older, you know what they're saying. There's times you, your back gets against the wall. It's like, uh, okay, maybe it's because of finances. Uh, me and Miss Vicky, we started out very poor. Uh, I, I grew up in a military family, and I just thought everybody lived like we did. And uh, we would have steak in our whole household every once in a while. We had one steak, and it was cut in six different pieces. Dad always had the bigger piece, and all of us kids had a little piece of steak, and that's, that's how we ate steak. And we'd have that maybe two or three times a year. And then I went over to Miss Vicky's house, and uh, they had a steak dinner. And everyone had a steak that filled up the whole plate, and there were three on a platter in the middle left over. And I thought, man, this is how rich people live. I couldn't believe it. And Miss Vicky would say, well, uh, they're, they're old steak. The butcher gives them to us at a good price because they're old steak. Well, in, in my home, I didn't know if it was old or new. I just knew there was little of it. She said, I remember as a teenager, she was saying one time, uh, uh, she said, uh, well, I think my mom's cooking steak again or my father's grilling steak again tonight. And she said, oh, I... I got where I just hate steak all the time. And her classmates were looking at her like, what? Well, I grew up in what I thought was a, a poor home. Uh, not a poor home. We never lacked for anything. You know, we got one pair of shoes a year. We, uh, we had all the patches, you know, when you get a tear in your blue jeans, you'd patch it or iron it or fix it. I got to thinking, you know, when you were poor and I grew up, you had holes that you had to patch in your pants. Now, if you're poor, you have pants with no patches and no holes. Now, the rich people have all the holes. And the richer they are, the more holes they put. In fact, sometimes I wonder, why bother with the little material you have? You're, you know, you ripped it every which way. But uh, 
it, it, by the way, it's a generational thing. You get our age, you, you, you know what that's about. Young people are saying, well, that's just being stylish. Yeah, I know. I wish I could have come up with that when I was in fifth grade. I'm just styling. <laughs> God's our sympathizer. He cares about us when we get down and out. He cares about us. We've got young couples here. Um, Miss Vicki and I just celebrated our 47th anniversary. But let me tell you, it is a wonderful journey most of the time. And you've got to be married a while to know what that means. It's a wonderful journey most of the time. But honestly, there's going to be times where you don't understand her and she doesn't understand you. And you've got to say, Lord, I, I just got to have some help here. And aren't you glad that God gives you help? God gives you compassion. God reminds you to show grace like he shows you grace. Show love like he shows you love. And not, it's not about you, it's about us. And God has to sympathize with you and teach you those things. There's a story told of a man who put uh, a sign up in his front yard, puppies for sale. And he had a little pen and he had five little puppies that were playing around in that pen. And a boy came by, he said, you know, I saw that sign earlier and I wanted to come by. I went home and gathered some money together and I came by and I wanted to look at your puppies and I was just wondering uh, how much they are. Maybe I could buy one. And the man said, well, they're $25 a piece. Now, as you know, that was, that was so long ago <laughs> because you can't buy anything for $25, it seems now anymore, but... Uh, they were for $25 a piece. And the little boy goes, oh, okay. I, I only had $2.40. And then he said, but I also, uh, somebody told me that one of, the, one of the puppies is hurt in his leg. And that, that's the one I wanted. And the man reached down and picked up a little puppy and said, yeah, it's, its leg is bad. And quite frankly, he can't use it very well. I'm afraid this puppy is not worth very much. He's going to limp all his life. And the boy said, well, that's the one I was hoping to get. And he reached down and grabbed hold of his breeches and he pulled it up and showed that he had a big brace underneath his pants leg. He said, that's... That's what I am. I'm, I'm crippled in my leg too. And I know it took a lot of love for my mother and father because I couldn't walk or put any weight on it for a long time. And it took me a long time to get this brace and be able to walk. And I just knew that puppy was going to need a lot of love. And the man looked down at the boy and he said, Son, you take that puppy home. And I know you're going to love on that puppy. And by the way, it's for free. See, God's a sympathizer. In our lowest moments, he's not there to correct us. He's not there to, uh, you know, remind us of our blunders. He pulls us out of jams in life that we get our own selves in. And yet he doesn't reprimand us. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth freely to all men, and then I love this part, and abradeth not, abradeth not. How many times have someone we know has got in trouble and we want it to say, I told you so, but in kindness, we've learned to bite our tongue. And not say anything. Aren't you glad God taught us that? Because that's how God is. He's our sympathizer. God is also our protector. In Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 10 and 11. 
He says, and showed his signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and on all of his servants and on all the people of his land, for thou knewest that they dwelt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou dividest, thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And their persecutors thou threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. God is our protector. He watches over us. If I were to ask this question tonight, how many of you have been in a situation that honestly could have taken your life, but you were spared? You'd be surprised that over half of us would raise our hands in the air that God had miraculously spared our lives. When I had pastored in Arkansas, and I knew God wanted me to start a church somewhere else, and I didn't have a clue until later I heard about Oregon being the state with the highest percentage of unchurched people, and I thought, that's where I want to go. I'd pastored in the Bible Belt where there's so many good churches of all sizes. But I wanted to go to a needy place. I wanted to share the gospel and see more people come to faith in Christ. And so after I resigned there, I was uh, asked by a mission board to consider that. And I prayed about it for a while and thought, well, I'll, 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 uh, I'll use your help if you're willing and so I started for seven months, started preaching at different churches for seven months, raising some support to come to Oregon. One of those preaching engagements was in the month of December, and we were traveling on an interstate to go to a city that was about an hour from where we lived. And right in front of me, I saw a car swerve and then go straight. And I told my wife, I said, I think that guy's drunk. And that was odd because I lived in northern uh, Arkansas and it's a dry county from the middle of the state, uh, Little Rock, all the way up to the north. In other words, you cannot buy alcohol. And so I said, I think he's drunk the way he swerved. And I just had got that out of my mouth until I hit the very bridge that he was on. And that bridge had what you call in the south and probably here too, black ice. So that it had sprinkled enough and it was cold enough that it had frozen solid as ice. And then we hit the bridge and then all of a sudden the back of my car was spinning around that was back when every car was rear wheel driven and would swerve around. And then I tried to go this way. And before you know it, if you feel like you're on an amusement ride where your car's going this way, this way, this way. We got through the bridge. We went off the road. We're going down the grass in the median. And I look, and there's a guardrail that's separating the interstates from each other. And we are going right straight dead into that guardrail. And I remember thinking, some of us aren't going to survive this. That was my last thought. My wife's last thought was what she said out loud. Lord, help us. I'm so glad we had a spiritual person in the car. I'm glad he didn't answer my prayer. Lord, some of us aren't going to make this. We have our two children in the back seat and Miss Vicki and I in the front. We hit the guardrail. It knocks our car straight up in the air. And we learned all this from a truck driver who stopped and helped us. Our car went 15 feet up in the air, came back down, landed on the back, then fell over on the side, Miss Vicky's side, 
and then toppled over on all four tires. The windows were busted out. We're still strapped in our seats. I look around and say, is everyone okay? Miss Vicky's got a small cut, maybe a quarter inch. The kids were yelling for a while, but they calmed down. They were just very young. And we were okay. Now, later that day, I started limping a little and realized I must have hit my ankle or something on a brake pedal or something. I spent the rest of that day praising God, and everyone who stopped had to hear about, we should have been dead, but God took care of us. I'm telling you, we got a great God. He took care of us. We should have died in that. Our car was completely totaled, and God protected us. I'm just saying, every once in a while, I think about God's protection. And the nation of Israel, there is a prayer, and they're thinking, Lord, you protected us. Think about how many battles they were in where they were vastly outnumbered. Sometimes having as many as a million different people in armies coming against them. And yet they cried out to God, and God miraculously gave a deliverance. How about when Sennacherib's army came and 186,000 people woke up dead? I mean, God just killed them all in their sleep. We have a God who is a protector. I've seen that time and time and time again, where God has protected us and watched over us. I was reading the illustration of Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey, of course, was the song leader of D.L. Moody back in the 1800s. And he was a, a tremendous man of God, had a great voice, and he would lead the great choirs and give specials before D.L. Moody would preach. And this was on Christmas Eve of 1875. He was traveling on a Delaware steamboat, and while he was traveling, there were some people who looked at him, and because D.L. Moody was so famous, every once in a while a picture of Ira Sankey would be in the newspapers as well as being his song leader, and they recognized him. And he was also a pretty proficient songwriter himself, and he said, would you mind singing us a song, and would you sing a song that, that you've written? Well, Ira Sankey uh, said, I'd rather not sing one that I've written, but there's a song I love to sing by William B. Bradbury. And the song is, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And so he just started singing a cappella. Everybody was quiet. We are thine, do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. He mentioned that refrain as he sang that beautiful song and everybody was spellbound. When he got done singing, a man worked his way up through the crowd and came to him. And he stood there and he said, did you ever serve in the Union Army? And I was saying, he said, well, yes, yes, I did. It was in the spring of 1860. And the man went on to say, um, do you remember doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in 1862? And Ira Sankey was like shocked. Well, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I, I did do picket duty, and I do remember that night where the moon was shining so bright. Yeah, how, how do you know about that? And the man said, I was a Confederate soldier, and I was standing in the shadows, and I'd made up my mind that this Union soldier in the moonlight wasn't going to live out the night. 
I raised my musket. I had it aimed on you. And then you lifted your head toward heaven and started singing, Save uh, Jesus like a shepherd lead us. And you came to that chorus about God being our guide and your guide. And he said, and when you said that, I, I thought about my godly mother who raised me to serve the Lord Jesus. But I, like young people, had gone astray. But when I heard that refrain, I could also hear my mother's voice singing that same song. I lowered my musket. And he said, and sir, that night I got right with God. And I was about to take your life till you sang that song. And Ira Sankey was again reminded of God's protection. I wonder how many times when we get to heaven, our guardian angel is going to show us all the wounds he took in our place, trying to get us through life. You might get to heaven and say, well, I never had many broken bones. And your guardian angel said, yeah, but how about this one, this one, this one? <laughs> I, I took those bruises for you, sparing your life. Now, I don't know how that all works. I just know that God has uh, angels watching over us, but he protects us. God is also the one who directs us. In num- uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 12 Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. God is the one who directs our path. Uh, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. God has a way of directing us. I remember when uh, I heard about Oregon having this state with the highest number of unchurched people. And uh, I, I know all these many years later, I don't always know if that's a good thing. Uh, but, but I'm still glad because we're in a place that needs the gospel. We are in a mission field. And that's a great, wonderful challenge. We're like a missionary that's gone to a foreign land. And sure, we could stay in America where people know the gospel and But we risk our lives to go and share the gospel around the world. And Oregon is just such a place as a third world country, spiritually. Spiritually it is. Now I know there's big cities and nice cars and beautiful homes and all those things economically. But spiritually it's as dark as it gets. Anywhere around the world. We are here on a mission for God. And I was praying about that. And of course, we were 2,400 miles away by the path that we took to get here. And my wife and I had been praying, if this is the place, let God make it real. Our children were young at the time, our two oldest, and they would pray for Portland, Oregon. They couldn't say Portland. They said Portland, and I thought, Por- what is Portland? But anyway, they prayed, and they would pray. And I remember God was just showing up. It was the most amazing thing. We'd never hardly heard of Portland, and then it got to every single day. Every time we turned on the news, they were showing something that happened in Portland, Oregon. Well, that's a long way. Why are they talking about Portland? That's a long way from Conway, Arkansas. I would meet people. Where are you from? Uh, we're, we're from Portland, Oregon. No, you're kidding me. Every single day we met something. And Miss Vicki and I were watching an Andy Griffith show. And this is where Aunt B made those kerosene pickles. And Barney stops a guy on the side of the road and says, you're the lucky visitor to our fair city, and you get a quart of famous pickles by Aunt B. And he said, by the way, where are you from? He says, Portland, Oregon. 
And he says, you're a long way from home. He says, yeah. And I look at Miss Vicki. I said, can you believe this? We've been praying and praying, and for the last month, every single day, we've either met someone or we've heard it or we read it. And uh, I said, honey, do you know where God wants us to go? And she said, yes, I do. I said, what do you think? She said, you tell me. (laughs) She's always like that. See, she was a sweet, submissive Southern girl. Now she's been in the Northwest a long time. I've learned to be submissive. (laughs) Now I'm the submissive one. No, I'm... (laughs) I'll be sleeping outside, don't tell that. And, and so I said, well, honey, I, I, I believe God wants us to go to Portland, Oregon. She said, I do too. And we knelt right down at that time. We just, without saying anything, we just knelt down. Uh, we were on the couch. Here's an ottoman right in front of the couch. We knelt down around that ottoman and we prayed. And we said, Lord, if you're the one calling us to Portland, Oregon, the answer is Yes. We're willing to go. And from that day on, God just put one thing in front of another to allow that all to happen. And God did some marvelous things in even getting us here. But I'm saying God directs us. And and our lives are not the only one he's directed. He's directed your life and all of our lives to bring us together, to serve God together. And, and, you know, we won't all be here all of our lives. But everywhere we are, it's a place we serve God for that time in our lives. And then God, in his providence, may move us here or move us there. And, and by the way, I'm good with that. That's God's business. That's God's business. I never think of members of Grandview as, as sheep. You know, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. No, no, no. Uh, Jesus is the shepherd. I'm just an under-shepherd. I'm not a shepherd. He is. But you're not my sheep. You're his sheep. And he guides his sheep. And he tells you where to go. And he tells you what to do. Not the pastor. God does that. And so God did that to the nation of Israel. He is the director. He is their commander. In verses 13 and 14, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments, and true laws, good statutes, and commandments, and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbaths, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws, by the hand of Moses thy servant. He said, You told us how to live. You're our commander. You're our God. You're our Lord. You lead us. You command us. And we follow. God is also our sustainer. In verse 15 it says, And gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in and possess the land, which thou hast sworn to give them. God is the one who sustains us and provides us. There's been times in the early days of our ministry where honestly, we didn't have much. And and God would supernaturally touch the heart of someone and food would come by. People would show up with some food. And I'm just saying, God knows your need. I love that phrase in Scripture. It says, for your heavenly Father knoweth what things you have need of. And for one family, it's food. For another family, it's tires on their car. For another family, it's it's this or that. God knows what you need. Sometimes he just needs you to work in the heart of one of your children, or maybe work in your marriage, or work in relationships. But God knows what you have need of. And praise God, they recognize that. Lord, you're our sustainer. 
When we needed something, you, you met it. When we needed water, you provided it. When we needed food, you gave it every day. When we asked for meat, you sent this great covey of quail to feed the whole Israelites. God miraculously provided for them and sustained them. God is our forgiver. Thank, thank the Lord for that. Nehemiah 19, verse 17 9, verse 17. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsook them not. I'm so glad that I grew up with a pastor who taught me that side of God. That he was a forgiver. That he was gracious. That he was kind. That when you failed, he didn't knock you down with the, you know, the royal diadem to hit over your head. No, it, he was not a God to fear. But as I've grown up, I've heard of people who were raised that way. And they felt like God was there to, you know, discipline them every time they messed up, every time they didn't take the right path. But that's not our God. Now, whom he loveth, he corrected, yes. And sometimes, I guess, I'm guilty a little bit of that. I'll say, sometimes God takes us to the woodshed. Uh, yeah, but rarely. If you had a loving father, you may have got spankings, but you didn't get it all the time. Sometimes a father just talks to you. And that's all it takes. Sometimes in raising your kids, you have one that all you have to do is just talk to them. And, and you see right then how submissive they become. And we have a God who's like that, who loves us. And don't feel like you're constantly judged by God as a believer. No, no, no. He loves you. He judged all your sin on his son on Calvary in your place. He loves you. And if God brings correction in your life, it's not because of his anger. Peter says that we've had earthly fathers who corrected us, and they corrected us when they were upset with us, but that's not God's method. God corrects us because he wants to direct us. He's saying, this is the way walking in it. Not because he's upset with us. He's our forgiver. And then we see God's our provider in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. That's a pretty good, pretty good thing. Hudson Taylor, of course, was a great missionary, inland Christian uh, missions, and he wrote, Our Heavenly Father is well-experienced, a well-experienced one in taking care of his children. He knew that all of his children wake up with a good appetite. So for 40 years in the wilderness, he graciously fed three million Israelites every single morning with manna. He said, we do not expect him to send three million missionaries to China. But should he do so, he is well able to feed every one of us. Someone wrote to um, Hudson Taylor and said, I'm in the process of raising funds. And if I can raise enough, I'm considering being a missionary in China. <clears throat> And Hudson Taylor wrote back, he said, well, son, if you need man support, 
you probably wouldn't make it in China anyway. You have to rely only on God. See, the great thing about Hudson Taylor was not the fact that he went to China, but the fact that he went with no support to China. He fully expected God to provide. And he was famous for this phrase, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. If you're doing what God wants you to do, God will take care of it. Some way, somehow, God will provide. The Bible tells us God is our corrector. In chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, my time is going through, uh, so let me read it quickly. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against thee, and cast thy law behind their backs, and slew thy prophets, which testified against them, to turn them to thee, and they wrought great provocation. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them, and in the time of their troubles, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hands of the enemies. So God uh, corrected them. And then God is righteous in verse 33. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. And then in verse 38, the last one, God makes a covenant with them. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and because of all this, we make sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests, seal unto it. Now, they wrote it, they said it, they signed it, and they put their seal, the individual seal of each one of them on it, saying, we are making a covenant with God. I was reading this week about the difference between a promise and a covenant. And a promise is something that you are saying, with all of my might, this is what I intend to do. And two parties can make a promise to each other. But what it said is when you make a covenant, it's saying, I will do what I say if you never do what you say. And there's the difference between a promise and a covenant. And that's why we remind people at the marriage altar that they're making a covenant to each other, not a promise. And that, cov- that covenant is saying, I am telling God, I'm yours for life. And that may be what you don't choose to do, but... We make a covenant, and God makes a covenant with us. And aren't you glad it's not based on our our accurately living the Christian life? So many times, as a young man, I remember I, (laughs) I always lived at the altar. Every time the sermon was preached, I always hit the altar. And by the way, I still think that's a good thing. But it's just a generational thing. It's how I grew up. Because I always felt like I wanted to get something right with God as soon as I heard God's message. And so I'd go and I'd talk to the Lord about this or that in my life. And inevitably, within the next several weeks, I'd come back and I'd talk to God about this or that in my life. And I'd be reminded it was the exact thing I prayed about last month. By the way, I think all of us have been there. And I was thinking, Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm coming again. But that's okay. Another six weeks, I'd come back on the same issue. I'm just saying God was gracious with me. And I found that when God wanted to turn my life this way or that way, it never was a, 
It was always, it was always just a gentle turn. I wish I could point to times in my life where I said, I made a decision. I'm going to do this the rest of my life or I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. And by the way, I have made those decisions. They just never got carried out. But I found that when God works in my life, he's corrected me gradually. And it's not like I made a decision. I'm going to read my Bible every day just and that's what happened. No, it's just I made it, I made it, I made it, and I just gradually, I just got there. And God had to do that in every single area of my life. And the Israelites are saying, that's the God we serve. That's the God who's guided us. That's the God who's directed us. And sometimes we were so stubborn. Remember, God told Paul, is it hard to kick against the pricks? You see, you'd have an animal that pulled a cart, and that animal could get stubborn, and it would kick back, and it would kick the cart and the driver on the cart. So what they did is, at the bottom of the cart, they start putting sharp sticks So when that animal got ornery and started kicking, it would kick back into those sharp sticks. And it wouldn't take long for them to realize, I don't think I'll do that again. And God was speaking to Saul of Tarsus. Saul, you're fighting conviction. You're fighting my plan for your life. And you're kicking against my will for your life. I'm afraid all of us have been like that too often. But God very graciously loved us through that time in our life and brought us to where we are. And by the way, he's not through with us. He's not through with any of us. But he very graciously guides us. The spiritual leaders of Israel gathered together in chapter 9 to remind all the people What a great God we serve. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for being our great God. Lord, we could spend the rest of the night having person after person come up and and just share some amazing thing that you've done in their life and how you gave direction when they needed it or how you sustained them miraculously when they needed it the most, or how you answered a prayer in a most phenomenal way. Lord, you are a great God who continues to guide your people, and your love is so amazing because you give us that sense of being loved when we deserve it the least. You are so kind to us. So, Father, we thank you and we love you. And we praise you as the Israelites did, we do today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. The piano's playing. If God's speaking to your heart and there's something you want to pray about, something you need to settle, you can come and you can ask God for his help, his guidance in your life. He's there for you. He loves you. He's going to take good care of you. Talk to the Lord while the piano's playing.
God bless you. Thank you so much for coming out on a Sunday night. We love you and thank God for you. Uh, I know that Pastor Layman and myself, we love this church. We love the good people of this church. And we are so privileged to be able to labor among you and count it a great honor. You are wonderful people that love the Lord, and we appreciate and love each and every single one of you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we dismiss. Father, again, we thank you for this time. I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide us throughout this week. And Lord, may we experience your richest blessings as we yield to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Amen.